This podcast is made possible by Sound Toys, makers of the award-winning Echo Boy and a full line of professional audio effects plugins. Twist, morph, drive, and push your creativity to brave new worlds with the analog attitude of Sound Toys. Learn more at soundtoys.com. Hey, it's Larry Crane. Welcome to the Tape Op Podcast. What is the common thread between Spike Lee, The Grateful Dead, Don Henley, Bonnie Raitt, Pat Metheny, Justin Vernon, James Mercer, Branford Marsalis, Snoop Dogg, Polo G, and countless other music luminaries? That'd be Bruce Hornsby. His collaborations, songwriting, performances, and off-sampled hit, The Way It Is, have kept Bruce Hornsby a vital force in the music community for almost four decades. Online publisher, Jeff Stanfield, caught up with Bruce recently to chat about his early days, scoring films for Spike Lee, and the joys of a stolen Rhodes piano. Enjoy! Jeff, number two. Okay, number two. How you doing there, Jeff? Good, man. How are you, Bruce? I'm not sucking too bad. Nice. That's good. <laughs> that's, that's, that's saying something these days, I'll tell you. Well, it- well, maybe it kind of is. It's, it's sort of the, I guess, all you can hope for these days. Well, before we get into your new record, I, I always like hearing kind of what what the initial seed, and not, not with your interest in music, but kind of when, when recording really became uh, more part of your world and when that, that, you know, idea of capturing recorded music kind of took, took hold with you. Okay, well, what comes to my mind right away is uh, post-college, I graduated from college, University of Miami Music, uh, music School in 77. And then we, we, came, I, we moved back up here to Williamsburg, Virginia, where I live again after 10 years in L.A. in the 80s, moved back. We lived here and we had a band, I had a couple of friends of mine come up from Miami. And so I guess we were sort of basically dumbasses at the time. We were just playing playing songs, playing radio songs, just trying to make a buck, playing the lounges and bars around the area. And then I guess I figured, well, if we're going to go any farther than this, we have to have our own songs. And so I guess since I'm the one who knew the most chords, I was uh, I became appointed band songwriter. And so, so I started writing these, you know, first attempts or half-assed songs. And though, so about, yeah, so about a year into our band, the next spring, 78, we bought a TAC four track and decided to make our own home recordings of these songs. Set up in my parents' living room. They had a, a pretty good Steinway Grand, which is sort of one of the catalysts earlier on for my getting interested in playing the piano. And so, so yeah, we made these. Uh, Really pretty mediocre tapes, and, and uh, so, but it was four tracks, and so we would do the usual. We'd we'd record everybody, and then we'd bounce all that down to one of the tracks, which left us three, and then we'd do vocals and bounce those down to one. Then we had two left, and we let somebody take a solo, 
and uh, and then mix all that down to well, the other track. What, however, however it worked, I'm really not. I'm really not your guy to be talking about all this because I'm even after all these years, I really don't know jack about all the stuff I'm supposed to know. I've tried to keep my head in the clouds all these years, and I just always felt that dealing with the constant hope for progression musically was enough to spend all my waking hours doing, never have taken the time. I've only used, I've only learned what I had to learn to get done what I wanted to get done. So uh, anyway, we did that. And we, uh, so I, I, I became fairly adept at the, at the Tascam TAC four track machine. And, and we made these tapes and we took a train up to New York City. We made a, a, a jock bag full of cassettes. And we walked around. We went to New York, opened up the Yellow Pages, and wrote down the addresses of all the companies, we, uh, record companies we'd heard of. And we just walked from door to door and, and gave these, uh, these tapes around. Uh, we actually, amazingly enough, at Atlantic Records, we got in to see a guy, a guy actually, for some reason led us back into the back, and, and he was an A&R guy. His name was Roger Probert, a British man. And so I was, my, I was with my drummer, or our, our, our drummer, John Molo, and, uh, who just called me this morning. I owe him a call, so I'll tell him that we were just talking about this. It's quite funny. So I was going down to uh, another label in the same big, big office building in downtown Manhattan, Fania Records, only to find it was a Latin label, so they had no interest in what we were doing. So I went back up, and it was about 20, 25 minutes later. Our tape ran about 30 minutes, six songs. And so they let me back to this office, and I, I'm walking down the hall to this office, and I hear our music coming out, a song called Country Club Dance, sort of a Joni Mitchell meets Pat Metheny tune. Uh, and, uh, and I walk in, and they're listening to it, and the the last song rolls off. I sit down with Molo, who's who's been in there the whole time, and the guy looks up at us and says, "You guys got problems." <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> of course, we didn't laugh at the time. It's hilarious now, but at the time it was a bit of a, a bit deflating, you know. So, uh, so that was. That was very memorable, of course. We never forget it. So you guys got problems. It's been a standard mantra of ours for many years. But so, so yeah, that's the long-winded answer to your question. What was your first, uh, uh, your, your first foray into maybe multi-track recording? Before that, in high school, we were writing, we were writing musical theater songs for a complete goofy play uh, called Schenectady. Back when it was popular to name bands after towns. We tried to find a, a nutty name. It was between Poughkeepsie and Schenectady, and Schenectady won. And so <clears throat> we would write these songs and play them and sing them into a cassette that had an open-air mic. You just sort of sing into the machine. But uh, so, okay, so so there there you go. There's your answer. No, it's good. It's a good answer. Well, things worked out all right. So <laughs> took me a while. Yeah, slow learner is what you could call me. Uh, it took me a while to figure it out. And my college years were mostly involved with trying to get the, the, the instrument together. Uh, I was a late starter. So I spent my college years really trying to catch up on an instrumental level and uh, just trying, just dealing with the piano. Uh, and so that was enough. It was, was not until after college that I said, okay, well, 
somebody's got to write the song, so that's I guess that's going to be me. And that then that really took over as my main thrust. My my playing for a while really sort of receded in importance and hence uh, ability because I was spending more time uh, for for uh, for a good reason, you know, for for the right reasons, spending more time with, uh, dealing with uh, writing songs. I'm not sure that having musicians not not because they're not capable of it, but um, you know, the, it it is a different it is a different role and a different job. Some people really enjoy um, you know rolling up their sleeves and getting in the weeds with the technical aspect of things, and and others, you know, I think it it obviously it frees you up to focus on other things, and and producers do that, and and musicians do that where they can actually be part of the band and let someone else deal with the the BS uh, at which in a lot of times it is, you know, so. Well, well, believe me, there's lots of times where I'm, where I'm wishing I had dealt with all this because it would make my process a little easier. But, uh, my longtime engineer, Wayne Pooley, working with me since fall of 91, uh, he has basically showed me what I need to know to get done what I have to get done. And so that's, that's kind of all I know. And frankly, if I don't do it for a while, I forget it. I'm, my mind is just not wired in that, in that sort of, in that way to really retain the knowledge. I am. He has to come back and give me the, the re-tutorial, you know, to, on it again. So, uh, so yeah, alas, that's the truth. Being a piano player, as opposed to a guitar player who can take his rig somewhere and, and they have their sound. Um, you know, if you really were uh, invested in the Steinway, yeah, hell bent on being an acoustic musician, right? Yeah, I mean, so it, I mean, and and very different than taking your acoustic guitar, your fiddle, or whatever instrument. A piano is massive. You can't. You're not packing it up in the car. And so, you know, how, how did that go when early days? How did you reconcile that? Well, in the early days, when I was in my college years, when I was just making a book and trying to put myself through school. I just I used a Fender Rhodes. I had the old classic uh, stage model, not the suitcase, and uh, so I would lug that all over the place. My back screaming at it's probably screaming at me right now because of all that that I I used to just drag that thing. It was really heavy. I'd drag it. I went to Berkeley College of Music for two semesters before I went to Miami. Was where where I ended up my last two years, and I used to drag that thing about nine ten blocks in inner city Boston around the campus, uh, from my apartment to the campus, and up up three flights of steps. It sounds insane to me now that that, 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 that when you're 20, it's a whole different different, uh, challenge or less of a challenge. So, uh, but when we started the band back up in Virginia after college, about maybe, we started off with just me playing Rhodes, but then I was writing songs and I was writing on the piano. So we found this old white, piano. It actually wasn't that old, but it was a pretty nice piano, and we would cart it around and, and play and play gigs. I, I had this little L shape. That was a kind of my go-to, you know, hip move, quote-unquote. I'd play one hand on the roads and one hand on the piano to get this sort of combo sound that we thought, oh, wow, this is, we should burn a, burn a big fat one while well, listening to this because it's so it's what a what a sound that we're making, you know. Of course, I'm saying that facetiously because it was, in the end, probably no big thing, no great thing. But uh, 
we thought at the time at age 23 that that was that that was something special maybe our car our sonic calling card so anyway it's funny to look I, I, you're, you're asking me questions that are taking me back and making me think about things I haven't thought about in years so so that's kind of fun at least you're not asking me the, the same old stuff which is good I, I appreciate it but anyway so, so so that was our thing with the piano when I moved to LA then I couldn't do that so much um, and I wasn't really playing. It's interesting to to note that my first few years of of living in L.A. from eight, uh, starting in 1980, I got a songwriter's a staff songwriter's job at 20th Century Fox. It sounds more impressive than it was. It wasn't really didn't have much to do with the film company. It was just owned by them. But uh, I was mostly writing songs on the. I was writing songs on the piano. But if I'd play live, I'd play uh, a Rhodes. Finally, I decided I didn't want the Rhodes anymore. And I left it in my car, my station wagon, for about two years in downtown L.A., hoping someone would steal it. <laughs> and, and, and no one wanted, no one would. Finally, I was doing a late-night session downtown Hollywood, and I walked out, and oh, my God, it's gone. Thank the low. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. So anyway, I was done with that and went back to the piano and what's what's really fun to note, looking back on it, is I was talking about my college years being much more deeply about virtuosity or acquiring some sort of level of virtuosity on the instrument. Uh, what's so amazing about it is, in the end, the song that broke us open was a song where I was just blowing through through most of the song the way it is, just soloing like a jazz musician would. And so, you know, what a lucky score for me that that happened because uh, uh, everyone thought it was a B-side at the time and there wasn't much of that going on, none of that on the radio. Mark Knopfler was getting away with soloing on the radio, Sultans of Swing, et cetera, but uh, very little of that. It's never been what hit radio has been about. It's about a, a good song sung well. And uh, so, so that was, uh, again, lucky for me. So I was able to use... Some of my old school training, you know, that usually gets gets swept aside when you decide to try to actually make a living and make a mark in the popular field. Um, you know, I think I think it's interesting that that um, you know piano players to have their voice heard on an instrument that's standardized for everyone that plays it in a way. So, but you know, you don't sound like McCoy Tyner, and he doesn't sound like you know. Bill Evans, and so you you've got you've got such a way you know it's it's a it's a unique challenge for for piano players to play and have their voice heard to find their own voice yeah that's to find their own unique style where uh, whether you like it or not you know who it is you know you know it's me playing and that so well people have asked me about that for years well how 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 is it that whenever I I hear you. I know it's you, and I had to come up with this facile, but but fairly true statement about it, a description about it, which is, uh, it's about the way I play chords, uh, a sort of a, a, a harmonic aesthetic, and I call it Bill Evans meets the hymn book. So I, I took uh, the the great chordal conception, harmonic conception of Bill Evans, which he was he was he basically was inspired by. The French Impressionists, Ravel, Debussy, mostly Ravel, uh, 
And so I, so I always loved that music. I've been a Bill Evans disciple since about 1974 or so, three or four. And, uh, and, but then that coupled with my love of old church music, the hymnals. So I call it Bill Evans meets the hymnal because I love those, oh, the thirds and the ba- the, the, the figured bass, the, just the movement and uh, triadic, but again, with uh, different bass movement, uh, making it uh, ever interesting to me anyway. And so Bill Evans meets the hymn book, that's my facile description, but I think it's fairly true. Of course, a lot of my music has no, <laughs> has no Bill Evans in the hymn, uh, meets the hymn book in it, but hopefully you can still hear me in there. So you have this new record, and it's full of collaborators. And your previous record, Absolute Zero, had a had a handful of of interesting collaborations on it. Yeah, for years I've been doing it. For many years I've had collaborators. Yeah, I was curious how those partnerships get put together for you, like you know, um, Bonnie Var and and um, some people that maybe wouldn't be the obvious first choice. Um, well, right. People have always been surprised at. at at the uh, the roster of, of of notables that show up on my records, and they're always going, "Wow, how how did he get that person?" Well, they, they're not really delving that deeply into it to know. If, uh, for instance, you mentioned Bon Iver. Uh if you'd known the record before Absolute Zero, this is my dulcimer record, Rehab Reunion. Well, Justin sings on Justin Vernon sings on that. He sings on the the, the first song on the record, possibly the best song on the record. Uh, over the rise, he sings the choruses. So that was a collaboration that was, or or a connection, uh, relationship that was starting a, a few a couple of years at before, uh, and then a th- three or four years before, absolute zero. So there's usually a fairly clear explanation for all this, but mostly it it, it all harks back to a time in the early '90s when I was writing a song with Robbie Robertson for his second solo record, Storyville. And uh, it's always so beautiful to be in that situation where you're working with some with someone who's amazing, and you get to step into their world and watch their their process, how they do, how they put together uh, a creative work. And so I took from Robbie this this statement he made to me once, where he said, "I like to cast my records like a film director would." And so I took that to heart for my next record. I'd already pretty much done it on my last record, the last range record, Night in the Town from 1990, but my next record that came out in 93, Harbor Lights, The Floodgates Opened with Jerry Garcia and Pat Metheny and Branford Marsalis and Phil Collins and John Bigham from Fishbone, uh, obviously, uh, Bonnie Raitt, obviously a disparate list. And uh, so I've just done it uh, forever, uh, ever since, for the most part. And so this last record that uh, you're talking about, Absolute Zero, uh, it was very natural to have Justin on the record. And so we went to Eau Claire, Wisconsin, where he lives and worked at his studio with some of his merry band of musical pranksters and uh, and, and songs from that re- from that, those, that four or five day session ended up on that record, Absolute Zero, and this and the, the, the subsequent uh, new release, uh, Not Secure Connection. So uh, in this on this record, it's pretty clear uh, each story, each each collaboration has its own story. My resolve, the, the duet with James Mercer, 
that duet came about because I, in writing the song, I'd been influenced by a Shin song called uh, Spilt Needles, one of my favorite Shin songs from their sort of mid-career record, Wincing the Night Away. I think it's 2007 or 8, 9, it came out. This angular line, synth line, and so I, I wrote my own version, my own version of that on this song. And I thought, well, hmm, this has a bit of, bit of a Shin's quality to it, this song. I'd sure like to make it into a duet and see if I could get James Mercer from the Shins. So I'd never met him. And uh, we reached out through the channels. And long story short, he heard the song, said, yeah, I'm in, and boom, boom, boom. We were just on Colbert last night uh, and uh, doing it, uh, a remote version. And so, so that was that. And uh, Vernon Reed on Bright Star Cast, he's on that because he because that song was originally a Spike Lee cue for for a movie from 2016 called The Sweet Blood of Jesus, and we and it was Spike's idea to get Vernon to come play, and I love Vernon, known him for years, and so he was already on it, and I called Vernon on and say, hey, I think we're going to use you. Are you okay with that? He said, yes, of course. And our friend from Jag Jaguar Records, Eric Danis turned us on to this uh, uh, beautiful young poet slash singer-songwriter, Jamila Woods. Uh, we sent her the song because I wanted to do, I needed a duet partner on that one too. And uh, she got back quickly enough to say, yes, I'm in. And so sort of you, 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 you thought it up and you, you look, you try to get, get them to do it and they say yes. So that's it's kind of simple in the end. I mean, and it seems like it's uh, most of this was not done remotely. It's not like you're sending tracks off to people and having them have their do their thing on it and send it back to you, and you kind of weed through that, which it seems to be, especially especially in the last six months, uh, yes. way that people are making records. But it sounds like it's important to you to go and be in the room. Yeah, but no, but what what you're saying is it's actually not quite true here because uh, I sent the. I, I still have not met James Mercer in person. <laughs> okay, we've we're we've become friends, and I've, we talk on the phone, and and uh, he's done a couple of these remote things for for us. Uh, I met Jamila; she came to Norfolk and played a show. But uh, but I so yeah, uh, James was remote. Jamila was remote. Vernon was not remote, but it was a few years ago. Rob Moose, uh, my great new partner. Uh, Basically, his his thing is almost always remote. A couple of times we've been in the studio with him and his, with, with he and his band, Why Music, and that's been great, great, uh, great to, to do that. But uh, no, this, so it's a little it's a little of both, but it works just fine. I I, I played on a record a few years ago by the uh, lead singer of the Killers, Brandon Flowers, and they just sent it to me. His producer Ariel Rexshaid sent us the the files, and and I uh, just as the trogs say, just pissed all over the tape. And and uh, they just used what they wanted, and there there you have it. So uh, the remote thing has been happening really. It's not just a coronavirus-era phenomenon. It's been going on for a really long time. I, I remember playing, when I was playing a lot with Ricky Skaggs, his amazing flat picker, Cody Kilby, was making a record. It's probably the late aughts, maybe 2008, 2009, and he just sent me the files, and I played on it, and boom, 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 there you were. Bill Evans, the the jazz sax player, around the same time, sent me something. I played some weird shit that he hated, but he still used it. <laughs> and, uh, and so, uh, so right. That so so it's been going on really f- uh, for a good while in the Pro Tools era. That's you know that's been a, 
it's been a, a big deal for a long time. So uh, yeah, not uh, so a little bit of both. It's probably fun for you to hear what they come up with as their fully formed idea rather than sitting there hashing it out. So that's probably fun in a lot of ways just to sort of hear their vision of what they thought it could, you know, their contribution is. Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's only problematic if they send it back to you and you think it's terrible. <laughs> and that's, that luckily for me, that hasn't really happened in a while. But we've had people in the studio, iconic figures, who, who would say, hey, I, let me sing on this one. And they would do it. And you're going, hmm, I don't think this is a good fit. It's not a good match here, maybe. But so you, you, you just continue on and finish the session and get it as, as, as good as you can get it. And then most likely that's the end of it. It doesn't, it doesn't end up. So it, it can be it, it, so that, that, but that, that those situations happen in person and they happen <clears throat> remotely too. So uh, that's always the risk you run. Again, luckily, I've I've been I've been fortunate to not have that happen very often. Yeah. Do you so? Do you have a studio at your place where you're able to work? Yeah, we used to have uh, a classic Neve eighty sixty eight. That was uh, it. Was the board in unique studios? They had a, quite the provenance. They, they say that uh, Bowie and John Lennon recorded on this thing in the seventies, and so we had that for many years. Then we realized it had just become a table. We weren't really using it. We used to have the the Neve flying faders. Now that was a, a, a piece of technology that I really learned my way around because I was always mixing and always using it. Uh, and so, I I still sort of pine for the flying data, for the flying faders era because I really felt that I'd received achieved a certain level of deftness with it. D E F T, not yeah, 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 not D E A F. I mean, it's, it sounds like I mean, previously you said you had you know you just sort of stayed out of that, but you just said that you were actually mixing. So are you doing the balancing and stuff on your projects? Oh, I still do. Yeah, we have some little thing here. I don't even know what it's called. I'm staring at it right here because I'm in this. Oh, it's a Euphonics MC Control. I've never even looked at that. So that's, we have about, I don't know, eight, 12 tracks of Euphonics. That's the mixing board. And I have a rig out in the studio. I have no idea what it is. Uh, but my, do you do you care about that stuff? Do you want to know what it is? Do you give a crap about it? Okay, because my engineer is right here. He's he's recording this for you, so he could pipe in and, t and answer all of your beautiful technical technical questions. Okay, you don't need that. Okay, we we are a recording magazine, but I and the other guys really feel like it's about the process and the people and the yeah, it's about the music. It's Hopefully. about the music and and. As much as people love uh, to listen to, you know, think how great the snare sound is on a Steely Dan record, it like yeah. it really has nothing to do with why yeah. that's a good record or any record's a good record. Really, it's about like without a good song, you're you're sort of doomed. So yeah, but you know what? Sometimes Sonics are a huge part of it. You remember that great Scritti Politti record? Oh sure. I mean, I, I get it. Yeah, you know, that, that's just an incredible sounding thing. I don't know why that came to my mind, but it just jumps out of the speakers. It's so fast. At and so grooving, it just sounds amazing. So, so I'm, look, I nod to it. I'm, 
I'm a, I'm a fan of amazing sounds. I just can't get them you know, on my own. You've done a ton of film scoring, especially your relationship with Spike Lee. And how is it different for you in terms of the storytelling um, than writing and recording your own music when you're sort of tasked with helping tell someone else's story? Well, I, I'm like Tom Hagen in The Godfather. He's a lawyer with one client, Don Corleone. I'm a film composer with one client, Spike Lee. And so I only work for him. I'm not interested in being a film composer. And uh, it's so funny, Terrence Blanchard, who, who scores, been scoring for Spike for 30-plus you know, years probably, he does all his. He does his his major prog, uh, projects. Terrence and I were talking about a year or two ago, and and uh, and he, Terrence was amazed at our process. And our process is, he'll he'll call me to do a project. Say, say the uh, the two seasons of She's Got to Have It on Netflix, uh, the, the the sort of re redux version on Netflix. And so Spike calls me up, saying, "Okay, so I'd like you to do this this season of this this she's got to have it thing." And so, so I I say, "Well, can you send me a little synopsis or sort of what the what the storyline is, or send me a script even?" So he'll send me that, or or maybe not. He just he'll sort of tell me what it tell me about the milieu, about the scene, where it takes place, a uh, bit of storyline, and then I'll just start writing cues based on. Uh, based on that little bit of knowledge and I'll probably write 15 or 20 pieces and I'll send them up to him. He says, he'll say, yeah. And then I'll get a little, he said, yeah, I like that, like this and this and this don't need this one. Don't like this one. But, uh, then he'll say, uh, he'll get a little more specific and then I'll write about 15 or 20 more, uh, from that based on a little more information. And then he places them in in the films where he wants to, which is of course his prerogative. It's his is his movie, and and so I was telling Terrence this, and he said, "Well, don't, have you ever?" He said, "Have you ever thought that the way he was using your music was inappropriate?" And I said, "Well, yeah, actually, I have thought that a few times." And and I but I was, it was it was okay. And he said, "Well, you know, it, it, other people who are interested in hiring you to be a film composer." They might hear that and think, "Well, this guy, he it, it is is not not really doing the job. He's he's it's an in, inappropriate use here." And I said to Terrence, "Terrence, you mistake me for someone who's trying to do this as a career. I I'm not. I just do it for Spike, and that's it. And that's all I all I care about. So, if someone, I don't care about the person who will." judge me <laughs> negatively for something like that. And so that's my situation with him. He, I write the music and he just puts it in uh, where he wants to. And it's worked like that for a while. I, I haven't done anything for him since last year. And so who knows if I'll ever do anything for him again. But I've worked with him for 26 years, longtime partners and, and great friends. He called me about a week and a half ago about something else, another little odd musical project he had for me. But uh, so, you, so you just don't know about that. And it doesn't matter. Uh, but uh, it, it has, it's led me to write different music that is informed, uh, again, my songwriting lately in a way that, I'm, that I really like. I'm really uh, pleased with it. And so that, that's it. I'm, I, I'm trying to, to write cinematically. So I'm trying to create 
soundscapes. And that's not really what you're always trying to do when you're writing a song. So again, it's it's, it's led me to a different to, to write led me to to write a different song, different type of song. Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny that you say that he used it, you know, or has plugged these things in where he felt they were appropriate. But I mean, is, that's how people use music for themselves anyway, right? Like, yeah, yeah, because you wrote you wrote a, a tune, thinking one thing doesn't mean that somebody's gonna have it mean that to them it's gonna yeah, mean whatever yeah. it wants to whoever there's listening to it i mean that's the beauty of music right you put it out there and people can embrace it and it could save someone's life or they could put it on while they you know make dinner I, while while they take a bath yes exactly. yeah well yeah exactly <laughs> so I, I, that's kind of interesting but it's obviously fixed and then his his feeling about the music becomes greater than that because it's fixed to a film so yeah yeah, that that's just our process, and it's it's worked fine for us. The first thing I did for him was a an ESPN documentary on Kobe Bryant called Kobe Doing Work, and in that case, in that situation, again the first time, I went over to his house and he showed me the film and was very specific with the time code running across the the screen. Okay, here I want this kind of thing. Here I want this kind of music. Here I want this, and there. so it was, it was really specific about that. But then the next time, uh, Red Hook Summer was the next time, and he just said, hey, just write, just go. And uh, so maybe the first time was an audition for me, and I guess I passed his test at least for about 11 years, which is how long it's been, 2008 till last year. I wanted to talk about basketball and uh, and, <laughs> and sports, mainly because I, I, I find that, you know, since we are, we have an audience that's a, a lot of engineers and producers, aspiring and you know, fans and readers of the magazine from Brian Eno on down to the guy that's like you were in college using a four track, you know. So yeah. But I think that one one thing that's greatly overlooked, and we have this conversation a lot, is like the importance of things outside of doing music and outside of the studio and things that create balance, so that the work that you do is, uh, you know that you put out there when you do do it is, is you, you have something to bring to it, <laughs> you know, the outside of just, yeah, you live, you live your life and uh, hopefully uh, you live a, a, a life of variety. And so all your disparate uh, experiences and influences uh, hopefully uh, are, are, are brought forth in your music. I, that's absolutely who I am. I, I'm that guy. I'm totally influenced by my life outside of uh, this, this studio. Well, for instance, you're you're ta you're talking about the sports thing. Well, so we we my wife Kathy and I had twin boys in 1992, and in about within about three or four years, it was very clear that these kids had great athletic gifts, and so we nurtured that, and navigating the uh, shark infested waters of youth travel sports, <laughs> and again, I ended up writing a song called "Shit's Crazy Out Here" on this new record about that. Uh, uh, specifically summer AAU elite level basketball where it's totally Darwinian. And so but, so we so th that experience has informed lots of uh, lots of uh, area, musical areas for me. I, but I've hell, I wrote a song about basketball, the old playground on my second record. And then there's a song on fourth record uh, Rain, uh, Rainbow's Cadillac on the Harbor Lights. That's uh, that's a song about 
some charismatic figure. It was inspired by the great old Bill Monroe bluegrass song, Uncle Penn. And, uh, and so, uh, but I made it about a playground bas- basketball uh, legend, jump to the top and pick off a dime, throw it down at the proper time. And uh, it's referring to David Thompson, David Skywalker, who could was known to be able to pick up a dime off the top of the backboard. His he could sky so high. So, uh, so that's been in my music for a long time. But this was this latest one. Shit's crazy out here. That was m- the most specific one. In fact, I my son Keith, who's who's now a pro in Germany, he played at LSU. So he's he's a hell of a player, and. Uh, He's the one who told me this this funny ass story that led to, to the song "Shit's Crazy Out Here." So you'll hear me yell, "Keith!" So I I, I name dropped him, and <laughs> and and our, our our other son Russell now is a huge mountaineer, mountain climber, and so I've learned a lot of. Uh, this is actually a funny story that that just happened today. Uh, something new happened here. It was it's great fun, hilarious actually. So. I was I wrote I was writing the aforementioned song My Resolve, and it's about a, it's a Sisyphean tale, of rolling the rock up the up the mountain and then having it roll right back down the the ups and downs of the creative life. So, I never knew what a crampon was until Russell Hornsby started using them in his mountain climbing the last three or four years. So I learned a new word, crampons. So I put. I put the song. I put. I put the word crampon in the song. Uh, move on up, and I roll back down. Crampons broke. No one hears my sound. So, uh, so, so here's crampons. And then just last night, they had James Mercer, and and me were on uh, the Colbert uh, YouTube channel, doing this song. And so there are all these comments on YouTube. And someone's saying, oh, does anybody know the lyrics? Oh, I love, I love these lyrics. I really want to see the lyrics. So somebody does their version, sort of transcribes their version with lots of errors. And then somebody else says, uh, said, man, this bridge is really, really throwing me. It sounds like he's saying, grandpa's broke. No one hears my sound. <laughs> well, crampons and grandpa, I get it. It's a... Uh, it's actually there's actually a great word that describes this. I just heard learned this word from my pal Tony Berg, the aforementioned producer. Uh, the word is mondegreen, and a mondegreen is a misheard lyric or line from a poem. So in in our world of music, it's it's to, it's always around. Like a mondegreen is something like the girl with colitis goes by. <laughs> you know. So so here we have our new mondegreen just this morning. Grandpa's broke, <laughs> and you know what? That that would just be you know that might be something that Jerry would have written or Robert Hunter. So, or they could have written about crampons too. You never know. <laughs> and then someone would have misheard it, and the the crowd going wild talking about grandpa. Grandpa ain't got no money. <laughs> grandpa made a bad investment. Well, I think we should just call it right there, Bruce. I think that's good. That's a good, great way to end. P- perfect. That is, man. Grandpa's broke. Bruce Hornsby discusses his indigent grandpa. <laughs> okay, Jeff. Well, nice talking to you. And Thanks, man. I, okay. Uh... Appreciate it. <laughs>
Thanks for listening. Find us online at tapeop.com, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time. <laughs>